Welcome to the Back in Time Podcast with Kyle and JD, where every week we jump into our DeLorean, cruise to 88 miles per hour, and travel back in time to review our favorite films. Every week we talk about current cinema, the latest trailers, and we pick a new favorite film every single episode. But I need a nuclear reaction to generate the 1.21 gigawatts of electricity. 1.21 gigawatts! Don't say that! Never say that! Goonies never say die! Here's your host, Kyle Autry, and his co-host, J.D. Welcome back to the Back in Time podcast. I am your host, Kyle Autry, joined, as always, by my co-host, J.D. J.D., how are you today? Dude, I am super pumped. We have such a great episode coming up today. We got a great guest for you guys. Like, I am stoked about what's going on today. Yeah, so we actually just wrapped up the interview with author Casey Gaines. He's uh, written a book called Where We're Going, We Don't Need Roads, the Back to the Future trilogy, or the making of the Back to the Future trilogy. And I have to say, this is a really fun interview. We cover a lot of stuff from the book, but we also cover some stuff outside of the book. And we get his perspective on the Back to the Future franchise and where it might be going or where it isn't going in his view. You know, JD, what were some of the things that you want to mention you know, just teasing it a little bit before we jump into the full interview. Yeah, no, this is a, obviously a topic that's near and dear to our hearts as podcast hosts and hopefully to the you guys as our audience. And to be able to really get like a, a second level of a deep dive into both the making and the production and, you know, what's going on behind the cameras and what goes into the creation of a movie. It's just, it's it's fantastic. And Casein is, is wonderful. And man, if you guys read his effing books, like both Kyle and I checked this, this book out and we will be reading more from him. I mean, this guy's great storyteller. Yeah. I'll, I'll throw some stuff out at the end, but yeah, you can follow him at casein gains on Twitter. He has a Facebook page as well. You can go right to his website, which is caseingains.com, And he has copies of all of his different books. So yeah, he's covered Kiwi's playhouse. He's covered a Christmas story as we're going to talk about today, where we don't need roads, Back to the Future, and then his latest book, The Dark Crystal, The Ultimate Visual History. So you can actually go on there. He'll autograph the books. Um, again, I read through the book in a matter of days. It's it's such an easy read, and it's full of you know behind-the-scenes photos. It's got a whole section of those, and I just it's it's worth it's worth getting your hands on. Okay, so without further ado, let's get to the interview and bring in author Casein Gaines. Yeah, so today on the podcast, we have Casein Gaines. He is an author, director, educator, and pop culture historian. He is the author of We Don't Need Roads, the making of the Back to the Future trilogy. His most recent book, The Dark Crystal, The Ultimate Visual History, was published last year by Insight Editions and received a starred review in Booklist. Casein, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be on. Yeah, so we're we're pumped to talk some Back to the Future. Yeah, I just randomly came across your book. I was going through the library and it just happened to catch my eye, out of the, really out of the corner of my eye. And I was like, what's this? And I pull it up and I start thumbing through it. And, you know, next thing I know, I check it out. I read through it really quick. It's a great book, full of information. And I was like, maybe he has a Twitter. So I get on the Twitter and there you are. And next thing you know, we're, we're exchange, exchanging messages. And now we're on the, on the phone. Well, the book has a cool reflective cover, so it's it's eye-catching. I'm glad it did the trick. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Shout out to whoever designed the cover, because it really worked. It looked a little glisten. And I was like, oh, what's this? Let me tell you, this is is a really horrible story, but it's so appropriate. Maybe I shouldn't even be telling it, but I'm going to do it anyway. We had this other cover for the book, and um, we got frighteningly close to having to go with that other cover. And I was just like mortified by it and i kept trying to get them to change it and they just wouldn't change it at the last minute 
they said, well, you know, if you're really unhappy with this cover, um, we can make a change and we can hire a new person to design the cover, but it, it's like a one-time thing. Like, whatever comes back, we can't make any changes because we have to go to print. You have to, you know, let us know now. Do you want us to scrap what we have and just throw caution to the wind or, or you know, roll with the one that we have? And I said, I, I really think we just need to... I'll, I'll roll the dice with whatever else comes out. And this new cover, which I just love, is the cover that came out. So um, you can, if you, you know, if you're really curious, you can Google around and you can find the old cover. Um, but I think, I think everyone will see there's a very big difference <laughs> between the first cover and the second cover. No disrespect to the original designer, but it just didn't really suit um, the book that I had written. I think. Okay. Yeah, that's an awesome story. I'll, I'll definitely be Google searching that later on. take a look (laughs) so give us a little background into your first memories of back to the future and and when you first saw this this film yes so um wow i have to say it it, it, i hope this isn't hard for me because i wrote about this in the introduction to the book um my aunt stacy who actually very recently passed away unfortunately um but my aunt was the person who showed me back to the future for the very first time, I was um, sent home sick from school. I wasn't really sick, but I was pretending to be sick. And <laughs> I, was probably, I was probably about five years old or so. And um, my aunt just had a ton of VHS tapes. I mean, you know, I don't know if, if you guys did, but, you know, when I was growing up, I had a million VHS tapes and my aunt had a million VHS tapes. And some of it were things that she had taped from HBO and some of it were things that she had purchased. Um, but she had the Back to the Future trilogy in a box set. And it came with this VHS called The Secrets of the Back to the Future trilogy. Wow. Um, the first time the trilogy had been released all together in a, in a package like that. And so um, she said, you know, you should watch this. I think you'll like this. And I just loved it. I loved it from the second I looked at that VHS box. And I saw that beautiful Drew Struzan uh, one sheet, you know, on the, on the cover. And I was just fascinated by it. I had never seen a car like DeLorean. I had never seen, um, I I recognized Michael J. Fox from uh, Family Ties, but I just was completely in awe of the movie from before the tape had left the sleeve. And, um, And I was so excited that when the movie was over, my aunt was able to say, um, well, you know, do you want to watch the next one? And I was like, oh my God, another one? So, I mean, you know, it's funny because a lot of um, real hardcore Back to the Future fans had to go through the torture of waiting (laughs) to see all three. The very first time I saw Back to the Future, I was a kid and I saw all three back to back to back. And I've never forgotten that experience. It was just an amazing way to, um, to see the film for the first time. That's great. So, what drew you into actually writing the book then all these years later? You know, I was always um, amazed by the story of Back to the Future. And I didn't I didn't know all of the ins and outs. I mean, I, I knew you know, I'd seen the DVD special features and I had, you know, read some articles online. I'd been to uh, it's now back to the future dot com. But at the time it was BTTF dot com. Yep. And I knew that like there was another actor who was cast as Marty McFly um, but I didn't really know all of the the details surrounding it as I was growing up. And as I got older, um, I was kind of amazed that there was this film that was so incredibly successful and um, had remained successful continuously for 30 years. And there had never been a really comprehensive book written about it. Um, Michael Clasterin wrote a book about the making of the Back to the Future trilogy back in, I want to say, 1990 or 1991, um, which at the time that I was writing my book was the only book out about Back to the Future that really was doing this behind-the-scenes look. Um, Michael has since redone his book as an ultimate visual history, which is just a beautiful, beautiful book. Um, But that project really came about after I was already working on We Don't Need Roads. And so when I started reaching out to people like Bob Gale, who... um, co-wrote the films and produced the films and really uh, the original concept really came from him. Um, You know, he was so excited that someone was embarking on this journey of, of telling the story. And so 
Uh, Bob Gale was really instrumental in helping me reach out to people like Leah Thompson. And, um, you know, I'd written a couple other books by that point. And so I had I was pretty resourceful myself in terms of getting a hold of like Huey Lewis and other people. Um, and so that was really the genesis of the writing of this book and how I got started. I, I was just sort of amazed that no one had sat down to chronicle the this bit of a uh, cinema history and cultural history. And, and um, I wanted to, you know, be a part of the solution to that. That's great. I love that story. So when you get into actually scheduling interviews and doing all your research, like what was the most difficult part of that entire process for you? <laughs> oh, the, the most difficult part of that process is always, um, uh, clearing, cl- clearing the agents, I think, clearing the agents and the managers. That's, you know, as I said, I've written um, a couple other books and they're all kind of based on um, the entertainment industry. And I find that if I can get a hold of someone directly, I mean, a perfect example is, is Leah Thompson, um, who I had reached out to her publicist. I don't know if it's her same publicist, but I reached out to her publicist um, and the publicist just sort of wrote back very quickly and said, you know, she's very busy. And it, I, I mean, you know, politely, but, you know, said that she's she's busy and she isn't really going to have time to do an interview. Um, and when I said to Bob Gale, you know, I, I'm, I'm having a little bit of a hard time getting a hold of Leah. Um, he said, oh, you know, don't don't worry about it. And um, within maybe a, a day or two, I had an email directly from Leah Thompson saying, you know, I just spoke with Bob and, you know, he gave me your email address and, you know, when do you want to talk? And we had a wonderful conversation and she was so incredibly gracious and accommodating. And I actually, I wrote something on Howard the Duck actually years later. And, um, and she was, she was great to go back to and was just as generous. But the point being that it was just, it's always just hard. Um, you know, it's hard because all of these celebrities have limited time. They have people that work with them that are responsible for sort of managing requests. And I understand that, you know, I don't begrudge anyone who turns down an interview, but get it clearing the gatekeepers is definitely the most difficult um, challenge in doing something like this. So who was the most challenging overall to really get down? Uh, the most challenging was definitely Michael J. Fox. And ultimately I did not get Michael J. Fox. Um, he's probably the only person who I really made a, a concerted effort to get and thought I would be able to get, but I wasn't able to. And, and unfortunately for me, he was in production on the Michael J. Fox show. He had yeah. that, you know, that, that time. So the whole time that I was trying, that I was writing the book, he was in production of the show. And then I had heard from his manager or publicist, well, reach back out to him in whatever month it was, let's say September. Um, reach back out to him in September because the show will be done. And when I reached back out, literally the the morning that I reached out to him, that afternoon, the news had broken that his show had been canceled. And so he wasn't doing any media. He wasn't taking any interview requests. He wasn't talking to anyone, um, which I completely understand. And so ultimately... Michael's people, you know, came back and said, you know, are you still available to do an interview? Um, he'd really like to do it. And the book was already done by that point, unfortunately. So Michael J. Fox and I just had, you know, um, bad timing, you know, uh, about it. But he was, you know, again, he was really um, accommodating. But the other person that sort of comes to mind is Tom Wilson, who played Biff, who I never got a hold of as well. But at the time, Tom Wilson wasn't really talking about Back to the Future. He's since done more interviews and does conventions and things like that. But he had gone through a, um, a very long hiatus of, of sort of um, not discussing his, his role in Back to the Future. So I kind of got caught up in that hiatus as well. Yeah, you know, he does he still hand out the business cards when people ask him questions? <laughs> I hope he does. Yeah, that's like the stuff of like um, like Hollywood lore, right? Like, I hope he still does, even though <laughs> even if he talks to people. I tried a million times to get a hold of Crispin Glover, but I never got Crispin Glover. But it, I, I, I sensed that I wouldn't. <laughs> I knew that I would. You know, one of, one of the questions I had for you was if you tried to reach out to Eric Stoltz. Oh, you know, I did. I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> You know, I I really wonder 
I am so fascinated by the story of Eric Stoltz. I mean, I'm sure, you know, if you read the book, I, you know, you know, I spent quite a bit of time yeah, on Yeah, I've Eric. got several questions about Stoltz coming up. <laughs> oh, great. I'd love to talk about this. So I made a million attempts to get a hold of Eric Stoltz. And I knew, I knew that Eric Stoltz was never going to talk to me. But I, I just tried. I tried, I tried, I tried. And, um, and I, I just couldn't make it happen. But of course I tried. I mean, it would be, it would be malpractice if I didn't try. Um, <laughs> but I really, Eric Stoltz is probably the person that I made the, the greatest effort to try and get a hold of, even more so than Crispin Glover. Because, and I read an interview with Eric Stoltz very recently, since long since the book has been released, where he said he really has no recollections of working on Back to the Future at all. And I said, oh, come on. Oh, yeah, come on now. There's, there's no way. I mean, you worked six weeks. You know, if I worked at a Dairy Queen for six weeks, I'd have some recollections of it. You know, I mean, like you, right. you worked on a film for six weeks. I, I, I can understand why he, um, <laughs> why he would say that he has no recollections, though, of course. Okay. That that's a perfect transition into my next question. And I, I really enjoy the part of the book where you get behind the scenes information on how Eric Stoltz parted ways from the production. Can you give our audience some insight into how Stoltz found out that he was getting replaced and when it actually occurred? Yes. They were filming in Puente Hills Mall, which is uh in the film is Twin Pines Mall, later yeah. the Twin Pine Mall, of course. I mean, I, to, to answer this question, I actually need to rewind just a little bit and give some context to what's going on here. Please. So Eric Stoltz is not anyone's first choice for Marty McFly, except for, <laughs> her, except for Sid Sheinberg and Sid Sheinberg, who I actually spoke to for this book, who he was the former head at, at the time and of the head, head of the studio at the time. And Sid Sheinberg loved Eric Stoltz's contributions in Mask. He loved the job they did in Mask and said, you know, this kid is going to be the next big, you know, uh, star. We need to cast him in Back to the Future. And Michael J. Fox was doing Family Ties at the time, and they would not release him from his duties to do Back to the Future. And so ultimately, they cast Eric Stoltz. And it was it was one of those cases of just bad casting. And and I will say, you know, I I teach at a high school and I direct the theater productions at the high school. And sometimes as the person doing casting, you find yourself in a situation where you think, I'm going to give someone a shot. I'm sure that they'll be able to grow into a role. I'm sure that they'll be fine. I'm sure with, you know, some rehearsal, some practice, some one-on-one -on -one time, they'll they'll do better. And what I find 9 times out of 10 is they don't always, you know, and you end up making life miserable for everyone by putting people in a, a situation where they don't have the best chance to succeed. You know, if you get what I'm saying. Yeah. And so that's sort of the situation that Eric found himself in. It wasn't really his fault. I mean, he auditioned for a part and he was given a part that was just sort of not a good fit for him. And he knew it. He knew it as well. But, you know, he was he was cast. So. There was an, uh, an opportunity to replace Eric with Michael, and because they could not stop production, they just tried to rework the schedule so that they would get more shots of Chris. You know, if it was a scene between Marty and Doc, they would just film more of Doc and not really film as much with Marty or film more with Lorraine and not so much with Marty because they knew that they were going to have to reshoot it. And so Eric Stoltz worked up until the day that he was let go. And they, I believe it was Zemeckis who went into his trailer and told him that he was being let go. And uh, Neil Canton, who was one of the producers, went in and spoke to uh, Chris Lloyd and told him that Eric was being let go. Um, the way the story goes, Neil, the producer, told me that when he said to Chris Lloyd, we're letting Eric go, Chris Lloyd said, who's Eric? And the reason was because Eric Stoltz insisted on being called Marty on set. And so Chris <laughs> Lloyd did not actually know. Vulture actually asked Christopher Lloyd about this, if you remembered this. They, they referenced the book and said, do you remember doing this? And he said, I, I don't actually I don't actually remember asking who's Marty, but I will I will swear that Neil Canton did tell me that that's what Chris Lloyd said. And so wow. um, with that being said, then they, they, you know, Eric was, was sent home 
they had a car pick up Eric and they called everyone out to um, all the crew and they, they called a big meeting and the head of the studio came in and they said, you know, we have good news and bad news. The, the bad news is that Eric Stoltz was just let go from this film. And uh, the good news is that we replaced him with Michael J. Fox. And so someone called out from the crowd, it sounds like it's just good news then. <laughs> that was, that was uh, the, the night that Eric Stoltz was let go from Back to the Future. In a nutshell. It's in more detail in the book, but that's in a nutshell. It was a pretty positive reaction from everybody it was on a set. positive reaction. And, you know, like I said, it just wasn't working. Eric was miserable. You know, it's like, I don't know if you guys play sports or play an instrument or, you know, what, what you guys do in terms of talent. But, yeah, both. Um, you know, it's like I'm not an athletic person. It would be like if someone said, OK, you're going to play in the Super Bowl this year. And like playing in the Super Bowl is an amazing opportunity. Like I, I wouldn't turn it down if someone if someone was going to give me that opportunity, I would absolutely do it. But it wouldn't be a good fit <laughs> you know, for me. Um <laughs> Or, or here's another way of, of, that I like to sort of describe it to people. Not all roles are right for all people. So if you had cast, let's see, if you had cast uh, Meryl Streep in Bridesmaids, um, it probably would not make for a very entertaining movie. And no one would doubt that Meryl Streep is a fine actor. It just wouldn't be the best part for her. And I think that's just the situation that Eric Stoltz found himself in. Is there anything out there? Was he? Did he have a sense of relief afterwards? I mean, I've been in positions where I've worked at jobs and had, you know, been in spots where, like, I hated it and I sucked at it. And then afterwards, been like, shoot, it's just so much better to be done with that. Well, lucky for Eric, immediately after he was let go, he had no recollection of having ever been there. So I have no idea. Even better. I, I have no idea whether or not he was upset or not. I think they maybe they did one of those, like, um, like men in black, like memory eraser. Yep. There you go. <laughs> Said no, he doesn't even remember that he was there. He sees photos of himself and he thinks it's like a, like a carnival ride, you know, sort of thing. Um, I have no idea. I have no idea what Eric thinks. And, you know, I, I spoke with Bob Gale and I spoke with Bob Zemeckis um, about the, the footage. Everyone wants to know about the footage. Will they ever see any footage of Eric Stoltz? And uh, Zemeckis said to me, he doesn't really think that footage will ever surface um, because there's, you know, Michael's performance is so iconic. There's nothing that anyone will ever do besides say, wow, Eric Stoltz was really bad in Back to the Future. And, and he doesn't really feel like that's fair um, to Eric. You know, again, he, Eric wasn't responsible for his casting. Bob Zemeckis was. And, um, and, and so in Sid Sheinberg, if you want to you know, go that far. And so for the footage to be released and have the public um, just sort of talk about how bad the footage is would only make Eric look bad when Eric really was not responsible for it. Um, so, it, you know, it, it probably isn't going to see the light of day. OK, yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense that they would do that to not make him look bad, but also to not take away from Michael J. Fox's performance, which is the highlight of his career by far. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, although there, I mean, there's money in releasing that footage and letting Stoltz actually tell his story. Should it happen to come back to him? Um, Listen, if Eric Stoltz is listening and I, I like to have this, I have this fantasy that Eric Stoltz closely follows everything back to the future that he's, I have this fantasy that he's read the book that he has it like highlighted and like, he has like notes <laughs> in it. <laughs> That he listens to the podcast, that he's like watched all the special features. Like these are like these my fantasies. And so, Eric, if you are listening, I am happy to uh, to let you tell your story. I mean, it, I think it's fast. It's an amazing piece of Hollywood history. Never had there been that much footage shot for a film, and then have the lead actor fired and recast. Never in the history of Hollywood. Um, and so. You know, there had been people that had been hired for part and then, you know, either had you know passed away um, or something like that, or that had been let go from a project before they started filming or after like a day of filming. But he shot for six weeks. And so that was that's quite quite a feat. Yeah, that's crazy. Let's talk a little bit about the DeLorean, which is such an iconic part of not only the film, but pop culture, cinema history. You know, from reading your book, 
this was not actually the first choice for their time travel device. Can you talk a little bit about the initial idea and what, what else they had in mind? Yes. So the initial idea was just sort of like a, like a chamber. And what they realized, like almost like a giant refrigerator sort of thing. And if you, <laughs> and if you think about it, a, a refrigerator is immobile. Like, there's an inherent problem <laughs> with that. Right. And so they, they ended up having to like cart this time machine chamber around on the back of a pickup truck, which no one really thought made for very um, cinematic uh, movie making. You know, it wasn't a very beautiful aesthetic. And the DeLorean at the time, you know, a lot of people don't realize the DeLorean at the time was already a car that had quite a notorious reputation. John DeLorean was already in jail, I believe, at the time the film was made. And so the car was not being, you know, was was not in production. And and it it was a car that was not only stylish, but also was a little bit dangerous notorious and so it was it ended up being a good fit and obviously they were able to get that great spaceman from pluto gag out of just like the futuristic look of the car yeah and so you know it's impossible today to see a delorean and not think of back to the future you know the film really has incredibly extended the life of that vehicle i mean who knows if we would even be remembering the DeLorean today if it weren't back to the future. It might be like, uh, you know, Ishtar or some other like flop that just, you know, that just has, like exists in the, uh, in the annals of, of pop culture. Yeah. And it's, it is so iconic too. And if you compare it to other time travel movies, especially like Bill and Ted, it's like who necessarily thinks or jumps out of their boat to see a, a phone booth, but you see a DeLorean come down the road and you lose your cool. Yeah, it's like it, all hands on deck. Come look at this shit. If you can get an, if you can actually get a DeLorean up to eighty-eight miles per hour, God love you, because they're actually not very <laughs> good cars. So, <laughs> I, I know I, I've heard of people that have like crapped out their DeLoreans trying to actually get it up to eighty-eight. They're just they're just not built. You know, they're just they're bad cars. They're just not very good cars. Yeah, can you even imagine that line coming from Doc Brown? He's like, "When this refrigerator hits eighty-eight degrees, we're going to see some serious shit." Like, <laughs> you know, Chris, Chris Lloyd can sell anything. He he could probably do it. <laughs> but, uh, but he's it. Yeah, no. It, it believe me, a Delore, I, What I can't imagine him saying is, if you're going to go back in time, why not do it with some style? Because you you can't go back in style with in a a chamber on the back of a pickup truck. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't work at all. So the film comes out. It's a massive box office success. We've covered that in a previous episode that we're going to put out a day before this one. They spent 24 weeks in the top 10. Critically, it's well-received across the board. So, Casein, when do they start talking about part two? Well, they start talking about part two. I'll say they being the studio um, wants a part two almost immediately. And Bob Zemeckis... And he's talked about this on the special features, and we had a great conversation um, about this for the book. But he said, you know, he really hates doing sequels. You know, sequels are – it's almost impossible to please people with a sequel because people want uh, a different film, but they want not too different. And most importantly, you know, when you when you sit down to write a movie, maybe this is different now in 2018, especially in the age of, you know, all of these Marvel films and But, you know, when you sit down to write a movie, you are trying to tell a complete story. You know, Back to the Future comes to a conclusion. The ending of the film, when they put Jennifer in the car and say, you know, you have to do something about your kids, was just supposed to be like an ironic joke that Marty had went back to resolve an issue with his parents. And now he had to go resolve an issue with his kids. It wasn't really meant to, to tee up for a sequel. But... Because the movie was so successful, they really wanted um, the Bobs to do a sequel, Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale. At the time, Zemeckis was working on Roger Rabbit, doing pre-production for Roger Rabbit. And he said, well, you know, the only way that I would do this sequel is if we go back and revisit the first film. You know, our film is about time travel, and we have a very unique opportunity here to go back and look at these things that occurred in the first film from a different perspective. So we're, you know, if you loved the first film, we're going to offer you kind of an alternate version of that first film. If you really are into change, we're going to offer you big change by showing you 2015. And so 
that was that was sort of the thing that excited them. You know, Zemeckis especially, both of them, but Zemeckis especially was really excited about doing this thing that had never been done in any sequel to date. I mean, now I, I, the thing that immediately comes to my mind is, um, I don't know if you've ever seen Lion King one and a half, but I mean, that's one thing that comes to mind where like they did a very similar sort of looking at the events of the Lion King um, animated film, but through a different perspective, this was really the first time that that had been done. And so they wrote this very long script for a movie called Paradox. And it was essentially what has uh, since become Back to the Future parts two and three. And the movie was just way, it was going to be too expensive and too long. It was going to be about three hours or so. And so they went to the head of the studio and um, Universal had just uh, done Howard the Duck, actually. And Howard the Duck was a massive flop. And they were not about to spend a lot of money on something that was not a certainty. I mean, no, no movie is a certainty, of course. And so Sid Sheinberg was able to be convinced that um, why not take the movie script, rip it in half, extend it so that you have two two-hour films, and then just sort of make both films um, one after the other so that you would sort of be able to keep the cost of your sets and even your crew and sort of, you know, you'd be able to sort of amortize a lot of the cost. And so they did that, and they filmed Back to the Future 2, and then they took a two-week break, and then they filmed Back to the Future 3 immediately after, and the films were released um, within a, less than a year of each other. Is that the first time that you know of that Hollywood had ever done a film that actually filmed back-to-back like that? Done one other time with um, a sequel to The Three Musketeers, but besides, okay. I think this was only the second time it was done. And now, of course... I don't know how much it's done today, but certainly, you know, going back maybe 10 years or so ago, it was it was done all the time with the Lord of the Rings films and things like that. The Harry yeah. Potter, films, you know, I, I, it seems unless I'm incorrect on this, it seems like that slowed down a little bit. You know, that that was a big um, a big trend in Hollywood after Back to the Future for some time. Yeah, it makes sense. It's an opportunity to save money on cast and crew and sets, like you said, and I know some movies still do it, but I think you're right. I mean, it was we're, we're getting away from that a little bit in Hollywood, especially as movies are starting to get a little bit cheaper to make digitally and the tax breaks are increasing. Yeah. And if you look at, you know, even, you know, I, I didn't notice it as a kid, but now certainly as an adult, I mean, I can see that Michael J. Fox looks older in the sequels. You know, I think now there's such a... Um, you know, you, you don't want your stars to age out um, and, and audiences are just so savvy now. And of course, there's there's home video. You know, there you, these things are going to um, they're going to last in a, in a way that people did not anticipate them lasting even even 40 years ago. And so there's HD. There's you know, you, there's there's an incentive to kind of retain the quality control is, is what I'm getting at by making these films concurrent as opposed to coming back and making a movie um, five years later. And in fact, you know, it brings me to a, a, a point. Christopher Lloyd had an incredibly hard time making um, part two, especially because, you know, Doc Brown's performance was so iconic. And if you think about it, some of those scenes he was filming for the fourth time, or for the third time, rather. He had filmed right. them with Eric Stoltz in part one, then filmed them with Michael J. Fox in part one, and then was filming them in part two from a different perspective. And so, you know, he was just concerned that he wasn't going to be able to match the, the same level of intensity in his performance. I mean, ultimately, you know, I think, you know, he did a fantastic job in the sequels, but he was concerned about how much time had passed between the first one and the second one. And so, um, you know, the, the, the actors were very happy to do um, the films back to back. You know, one of the questions I, I wanted to ask this a little bit earlier, but you know, let's talk about George McFly for a second, you know, played by Crispin Glover. Did you have any interaction with, you know, even his representatives or any, anything else that maybe the Bobs mentioned about Crispin and, you know, just not having him for the, the next two films? Oh yes, uh, <laughs> there's there's a lot in the book about Crispin and um, why he's not in the next two films. I had the pleasure of speaking not only um, 
to the Bobs, but also Jeffrey Weissman, who's the actor who replaced him, and uh, it, for the sequels, and and also the other actors and and other filmmakers. You know, Crispin was someone that the actors all loved working with. Chris Lloyd, Leah Thompson, they all loved working with Crispin. The crew really did not love working with Crispin because Crispin <laughs> was eccentric. And so there's there's one, uh, there are a couple, couple little stories. For example, I'll tell you the two quick little stories. One that Leah told me, and it, it's in the book, and it sounds so incredibly unbelievable, it's, it, it's true. Crispin was very concerned that his character at the end of the movie be a different character. You know, the, the new, you know, the, the big flies that were living a better life. He really wanted to get in character for this. And, you know, he was concerned um, that he wouldn't be able to do it. So he invited Leah over to his house to, to go through the script and, and read through, to read through things. And so when Leah gets there, the, his, his house or his apartment rather is painted entirely black, not just like including the ceiling, like everything is completely black and there is no furniture in the house at all, except for a gynecological examination table. Jeez. (laughs) And, and so Leah's like, you know, this is, this is your place. This is where you live. And he's like, Oh yeah. You know, I just like to keep it minimalist. And she's like, all right, well, that, so, you know, we're going to go through the script. And so he said, well, I really think, you know, I really think that because the McFlies are now, you know, uh, in a better relationship, it would be better if we just did something that was a bonding experience. So I got a canvas and I thought we could maybe paint something together. And that's how we'll sort of get into character. And so the two of them painted a volcano. And then, like, after they painted the volcano, she was like, well, do you want to go over this script? And he's like, no, I feel like I'm pretty good. And, and then she went home. And that was it. And so, that, you know, this, if, you're, if you're an actor and you're not responsible for the well-being of the film, <laughs> you can sort of deal with Crispin's eccentricities. You know, if you're, if you're one of the producers and time is money, you know, and Crispin is, uh, you know, having odd behavior on set or difficult behavior on set, it, it isn't really um, <laughs> something that's tolerated quite so much. When it came time to do the sequels, Crispin really wanted, you know, everyone of course knew that the, that the movies were an amazing success and Crispin wanted what he felt he was deserved as being one of the stars of the movie. You know, of course he was one of the stars of the first film. So he wanted, um, what Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd were getting for the sequel. At the time, the script had not been written yet. And so Bob Gale, who was doing the, the lead negotiating, refused to pay that. And they just could not. It was one of those things where Crispin really didn't want to do the movie all that much. He felt like if I'm going to do it, I at least should be compensated for it. He felt like he had been really mistreated by the crew. They they had done some cruel things to him, in his view, um, over the course of filming. The crew really didn't want to work with Crispin again. And so they found a workaround, which was behind hiring someone who resembled Crispin enough and then putting him in facial appliances to mask the fact that it wasn't Crispin. Wow. Yeah, and I know he ends up getting a pretty good payday from that, didn't he? He did. He ended up getting... Um, Ended up getting exactly what he exactly the amount <laughs> he wanted to be in the film. <laughs> so they they had been better off just to go ahead and put him in it, not fight uh, it, or or not. Yeah, <laughs> you or know, not. It's hard, yeah. You know, it's hard to say because from you know they did not pay Jeffrey Weissman very well, and so they you know they they did they get Crispin? You know, did they did they save themselves the headache? You know, you could argue that. By being sued, they they caused a headache, but they also would have endured someone that they they really had a bad experience working with on the first film. And so, or I, I, yeah, I guess bad is a, is a fair way of putting it. I was going to sort of pretty it up a little bit, but the people that I spoke with basically said that Crispin was, um, you know, a, a real challenge to deal with on the first film. So I think the real question that our audience is going to want to know is, where is the painting of the volcano at? <laughs> 
Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I want to see it. I don't know. I'm going to... Um... I'm act, I'm doing um, a convention <laughs> that Leah Thompson is a, is at in uh, two in in August. Maybe if I see her, um, I will ask her if she's yes, please do. <laughs> if I do, I, I'll try and get her on video. I'll and I'll I'll tag you guys if she gives me an answer. <laughs> Perfect. And then if you ever re-release the book, there's your next cover. Yeah, the that, just the I mean, could you imagine how interesting? Though? I mean. But it's moments like these that make me go like, you know, truth is stranger than fiction. That's why I love writing nonfiction books. You know, there are just so many great stories that of things that actually happened. You know, if I if this were fiction and I said that story, he would say, what do you mean? His apartment's all black and he had nothing but a medical examination table and they painted a volcano. <laughs> but it's a true life story. True story. Wow. That's an awesome story. So, Casey, how do you personally rank the Back to the Future films in terms of which ones you personally enjoy? Oh, don't ask me that. Kyle, you asshole. So here, here's, here's the honest truth. I think Back to the Future, the first one, is almost a perfect film. It is, it is beautifully shot. It is beautifully structured. It moves at a great pace. It's, it's like there is no denying that Back to the Future is the best from a filmmaking standpoint of the three. However, I do really love part two. And I love it just because I love the ambition of it. I mean, I just think it's, there's so much movie packed into that movie. I, I, I love it. And I, I, it's so ambitious. And, and if you think about it, it's ambitious when they didn't have to be ambitious. The first movie was really, really successful. They could have done the exact same thing. You know, and in fact, there was an early version of the script that you, that you may know about that, where they go back to the, the late 60s. Yeah, 60s. And, yep. and, it, and it's almost the same movie. I mean, you know, it, it's obviously different enough, but it's almost the exact same movie. And they could have made that, and I'm sure it would have made a lot of money. But... They chose to do something really, really bold and really ambitious. And I just think um, it's such a creative story. You know, I, I it's it's an imperfect movie. But if you said, like, um, if I were teaching, like, a, you know, a, a screenwriting course or something, I don't know how you can talk about Back to the Future without really spending some time on, on part two. And, and to be honest with you, you know, one of the things that I've heard people say about the book is that I didn't really spend enough time on part three. And I, I can understand people's sort of critique of that. But just from my perspective, there's part three is a simpler film. So if you're writing about, you know, the the weird behind the scenes stories or the history of it, you know, part three is a very straightforward movie. There aren't a lot of intricacies to that particular film because it's a Western. Part two is just filled with intricacies and i i think it's um beautifully manic <laughs> part two yeah that's such a cool way of putting it and so many sequels fall fall victim to the exact opposite of that like you know we kyle and his, his wife recently did a review of jurassic world fallen kingdom it's and horrible. Is this, uh, what it's horrible. I just saw it a couple. I saw it a couple days ago. I, I thought it was tr complete trash. Same here. And it, it does. It, it takes all of the elements that the original story of Jurassic World does and just repeats them for the sake of familiarity. To be like, you know, it's like eating the same food, but instead of you just use a different kind of ketchup. Yeah. Oh, now I have to ask you both. So, so Kyle and JD, what are you? What are your? How do you rank them? Now I'm putting you on the spot. I'll, I'll go first. I go one, three, and two. And, and the reason I like three, for whatever reason, growing up, we only had Back to the Future one and three. I don't, <laughs> I don't know why my, my dad didn't buy number two, but I just, I didn't watch that movie as much. So I kind of fell in love with three because it was, a, you know, when I got tired of watching number one, it was just, it was a good second option I'm outside of Ghostbusters or whatever else I was getting into at that point. So. Yeah, I, I do like the the Wild West Back to the Future. Did you know what was going on? Like, did you get a good... I can't even imagine just seeing one and three. Like, did you did you know what had happened in two? I know they do, oh, they do that yeah. recap. 
yeah, every once in a while, you know, we would go to the Blockbuster and I would rent it and watch okay. it. Yeah, for whatever reason, we just never had two. It'd make a lot of sense. JD, how about you? So I'm going to be a, a traditionalist. I'm going to say, well, I did as a child love the third movie. I love the Wild Wild West elements, but, you know, having seen it again as an adult, I have to go part one and two, and then I'm going to leave a blank spot for a future movie. And then I'm going to say part three comes in fourth place. Wow. Um, <laughs> and the reason I, I love everything that Cassina said, because part one and two is kind of like a boomerang. You, you throw it out and you have the first movie and it's a beautiful throw. And then it returns back to you and it sort of finishes up that story arc in a really cool way. And the third movie to me just always seems like a separate adventure that, and I never understood like how these families were still in the same area for so many years and still picking on each other for hundreds of years. It just seems it, to me, it was a lot of it was too convenient for the sake of comedy, which I love, but from a storytelling perspective, I, 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 I have to push it off a little bit. I love that you're, yeah, I, I love that. And you know, it's funny because as a kid, um, as a kid, I really liked the device of like Marty being called chicken and the way that he responds to that. And I really, you know, that whole thing, the way that it ties up in part three, like it really resonated with me. And as an adult, it just makes me cringe so much. Like, <laughs> like it really does. It's like, I understand why it added in the movie. Um, but it just, it, it, it's completely devoid of the character as he is in part one. You know, there never was that sort of, that device and marty in part one is is so much cooler than he is in two and three you know is that i mean do you guys agree with me on that i mean like i feel like he's in part two and three you know that he grows up to be like this loser who's taken advantage of by his boss who's you know who's sort of swindled into getting into these situations who has um the encounter with you know needles and things like that you know there are all of these things that sort of make you question you know, Marty's coolness. Whereas in the first movie, I thought that Marty was just like absolutely cool, you know, lying about going up to the lake with his girlfriend and playing rock and roll. And, you know, it just seemed like he was just like a suave character. I, I think that there were some changes made for, you know, to use your word, convenience of storytelling for the sequels that, again, on repeat viewings are clear that I, and, and as a kid, I don't think I noticed them as much. So, Casey, I'm going to read some audience questions for you um, from our listeners on Twitter and Instagram. So, awesome. first one comes from the Upside Down podcast. Clearly, that's a Stranger Things podcast. Yes. Uh, and they want or to know. <laughs> <laughs> they would like to know, how do, you, how do they feel knowing that this story is cross-generational, the cast and crew? Gosh, they love it. I mean... Um, Everyone that I've spoken to loves the fact that this film resonates with kids and adults and even grandparents. I mean, you know, when this film came out in the 1980s, in 1985, you know, it, it perfectly hit in that kind of 50s nostalgia boom, you know, Happy Days, Grease, you know, there, you know, we were... We were still sort of, you know, even, you know, Nick at Night was kind of getting started. We were in this this era of loving to look back at the 50s um, in a way that now we're kind of loving to look back at the 80s. And so Back to the Future has always had that kind of cross-generational appeal. And even now that when I do these conventions or talks at libraries or museums or whatever about Back to the Future, there are always children. And when I ask the kids, you know, what do you love about the movie? They say, well, I love the hoverboard. I mean, that was my answer 30 years ago about why, why I love the movie. <laughs> you know, I love the car. I love the, you know, it, it's, it's amazing. This is so corny, but it's just a true answer. But it is corny, I know. But it's amazing that this film about time is so timeless. You know, it's so dated. It's so steeped in the 80s. Um, and yet because it's about time travel, the fact that it's so of the 80s almost just makes it seem like we're going to the 80s as a time period. You know, not like this is a film that's current or that's trying to be current. Do you get what I mean? You know, kids, kids today can see the movie and just sort of feel like 
it's no different. You know, the 80s in part one is no different than the 50s in part one. It's just this sort of cinematic interpretation of a time period. And and the filmmakers all share this sentiment. They, you know, literally, I think the last sentence of the book is, I pose this question to Zemeckis and Zemeckis said, you know, it's mission accomplished. I, I think that's literally the way that I ended the book. So they they certainly feel like it's mission accomplished. And that's a really great point uh, that you make about talking about the difference between watching this movie in current day and watching the movie in the 80s and then referring back to the 50s. I mean, the movie itself is a time capsule of the time that it was created. And so I love the idea that it's you are jumping in the DeLorean. And this is what we do with our podcast every week. And that's why I love what we do with our podcast, because we put ourselves watching a movie in the time when the movie came out. And if you can do that, I think that's the point that the filmmakers really would love to drive home. And that makes movies, like you said, timeless. Yeah. And it's, it's why it's why there are so few films like Back to the Future that really hold up. You know, um, I write about film all the time, of course. And sometimes things are so... Cur- I mean, you know, let's be honest. I mean, these Marvel films... And I think that the Marvel films are by and large good. You know, I'm not, I'm not you know crapping on the Marvel film, but these Marvel films are all so incredibly contemporary that we're not going to be watching them in 30 years from now. I mean, maybe, maybe we will actually, because it's kind of unique what they're doing with the, the structure of them. But, you know, there's, there's going to be something that feels very dated about them. Unlike, you know, these films that have kind of a classic um, aesthetic. I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm being like an old man going like, you know, back in my day, movies were better. I mean, maybe that's what I'm doing a little bit. <laughs> but, but I just think there is something about not trying to make something too contemporary. And I think Back to the Future, even when they were depicting the 80s, still managed to make it kind of like a cinematic 80s in, in a way that Stranger Things does so beautifully. Since since the um, Upside Down podcast asked the question, you know, yeah. Stranger Things really captures this where it's a fantasy version of the 80s, um, not the actual 80s. I don't know. I don't know if any of this is making sense. It makes sense to me. No, no, I follow you 100 percent. And, you know, to me, it sort of is like a John Updike short story A&P where it takes that slice of life and defines it and then it exists. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So part two of their question actually deals with this. And I think they're just wanting your opinion. But it's rumored that Back to the Future will play some role in Stranger Things season three because it's going to take place in 1985, the year of the film's release. And they're just saying it will expose a whole new group of fans to Marty and Doc. And it's the story that keeps on going. So would, is that something you would be looking forward to seeing in that in that television show? I love Stranger Things. I love Back to the Future. And I um, and I love the 80s. So absolutely. And I, I, I think that what they do with Stranger Things and the way that they weave in popular culture is so uh, it feels so natural. It, it feels natural, like when I was growing up in the '80s. Like, like I, like I feel. I don't feel like I'm watching a throwback to the '80s. I feel like I'm actually in the '80s watching TV. <laughs> and so, um, so I, I trust they would do a good job working some Back to the Future. And I've got one more question comes from at Phantom Dark Dave on Twitter, who wants to know: Were there any loose ends left open for another film? They yeah. intentionally, they smash the DeLorean to bits. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they intentionally, even though they then made an animated series and they then did, you know, they did other things, but, um, but they intentionally wanted to end it. You know, um, Zemeckis talks about how, you know, there's a, there's power in, um, threes. I'm actually wearing a schoolhouse rock shirt right now. And so three is a magic number, of course, comes to mind, but there's, there's something divine about, um, a trilogy there's something triumphant about a trilogy they also just didn't you know they they never wanted to make three in the first place they they barely wanted to make two they they thought it they thought it was a unique opportunity to make the second one and then the script just ran long and they didn't want to cut anything out so they split it into two but um by the time they were done you know they had spent a long time in the world of hill valley you know michael j fox had gotten married and had children you know there was just a lot that that was going on and so um 
they actually wait. I, I'm not entirely sure that he had children. He might have, but I don't want someone to say, wait, he didn't have children at the time. So he had definitely gotten married then uh, filming the first one. He might have had children as well by that time. I don't remember off the top of my head. Okay. But just for and people were in different um places in their lives. And so everyone was kind of ready to move on to other projects. So and we just had a couple questions for you. You know, outside of the Back to the Future franchise, what are some of your other favorite films? Well, I, I wrote a book on Pee-wee Herman, and I love Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Um, I uh, also wrote a book on The Dark Crystal. Um, I love Jim Henson. I love The Muppets. I love Little Shop of Horrors. I mean, I'm, I'm stuck in the 80s a little bit in terms of my thinking right now, but I, <laughs> there are movies I love besides the 80s. <laughs> um, let's see. I, uh, I, love, I love a lot of movies. It's really hard for me to say. If I did, like, say, like, some of my favorite films, I love Taxi Driver. I love Christopher Nolan's Memento. I love um, the Dark Knight films. I love Gremlins. There's a lot of films that I really, really love and, and hope to have the opportunity to spend some time um, exploring, whether it's through writing or just talking about. I I think I told you, but I, I wrote a um, an oral history on Howard the Duck, which is like so nuts. And when I did it, I was like, I hope people read this. And people like loved it which was great because i really love howard the duck just from when i was a kid like i i just was fascinated by it and so there was this movie theater up in in boston that was doing a double feature of the dark crystal and howard the duck (laughs) and i contacted them and said you're never going to believe this but i am like i am uniquely suited to introduce this double feature. I have no idea why you're showing these two films back to back. I have no idea what the through line <laughs> is. But I went up to Boston and I um, introduced The Dark Crystal and Howard the Duck. And I I couldn't believe that I was standing on stage, like sharing like, you know, fun facts and trivia about Howard the Duck. You know, there was like a little like four-year-old me that was going like, I can't believe this is what I grew up doing. <laughs> it's just bizarre, but I love it. So you, you just mentioned you, you just put out The Dark Crystal, The Ultimate Visual History last year or earlier this year? It was uh, last year. Last year. Okay. So what's next for you in terms of what else you want to cover and any other films you want to get into at some point? Ooh. Well, um, I will say in terms of film, I don't have an actual – well, there, there are always things that I want to cover. Um, you know, it's I, I'm really into – fascinating stories and so like i said about back to the future you know it wasn't just that i loved the film um it was that i also really loved the story of the making of the films but there's another project that i am working on that i that i actually can't announce but i can announce like so like really soon i hate when people do this like on yeah. like on you know but it's, <laughs> it's actually true it's actually really true so so if you follow me on social media I'll be I'll be talking about it very soon, but I will say it it's actually not about a film. It's a nonfiction, it's a behind the scenes story, but it's it's in a little bit of a different direction. And I, like I said, am really into interesting stories about popular culture. They don't just have to be about film. And so this is a little bit different for me. But you know, I don't know about you guys, but like you know, back when like Behind the Music was on or Each True Hollywood Story, like I could watch Each True Hollywood Story about pretty much anyone as long as the story was interested. You know, was interesting. I was I was there for it, even if I didn't know who Leif Garrett was or, or something like that. <laughs> um, so it's it's a little bit of a different project, but but if you're a fan of We Don't Need Roads or the Dark Crystal book or any of the other things that I've written, if you like the way that I tell stories, you should want to check it out and follow me on social media for more. I'll be talking about it very, very soon. I, I'm really interested to read the A Christmas Story. That's on yes. my list of, of one I want to get from, from your Amazon links or off of your website, which I'll drop some links in a minute. That's one of the ones I want to see. I'd love to see you cover like Monster Squad. That would be a really oh my great gosh, story. Wouldn't that be awesome? That there, you know what? I'm I'm always like I used to actually answer this question, but I get nervous about answering this question because like I'm afraid that like before I have a chance to do it, someone else will go, "Well, that's a great idea," and like they'll do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I will say because I know someone else is already working on this book, so I have no problem saying it. But I would have loved to have written a book on something like Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which I just <sighs> think is such an amazing film and such an amazing you know, unique movie that 
will never exist again because everyone is just, you know, everyone's just a capitalistic bastard and like they would never be able to get all those people to all those movie studios to agree to license their characters. <laughs> but, you know, someone actually is writing a book on the making of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And so once that book is out, I will be like first to pre-order it. But um, but yeah, it's it, the, the Christmas Story book is really interesting because that book is actually a little bit different than the other books that I've written. Because, like, the first half of the book is really about the making of the movie, and then the second half of the book is really kind of about what it was like for each of these child stars growing up being known for a movie that they made 30 years earlier that wasn't a success at all, and then, you know, finding themselves to be sort of celebrities and in demand for interviews and conventions and things like that as adults. And, you know, by the time... Many of them were, by the time the film had reached success, many of them were even out of the film business. So it's, it's, it's interesting because it's sort of the making of the movie and then also um, the aftermath for the creative team. It's, it's, it's really, it's a cool, it's a cool sort of book, if I, if I can say so myself. But if you're into <laughs> a Christmas story, you know, people that are into the movie have really sort of enjoyed finding out not just about the making of the movie, but also a lot about the actors. Yeah, I know that's on our list to cover later in the year. We would love to have you back on to talk about that film. I'd and, love to. Uh, in fact, if you give me enough notice, I might even be able to get you a, uh, a cast member or two. So just let me know. Done. Done and done. Give me like a month and I'll... Um, Ian Petrella, who's a great friend of mine, he um, was the little brother Randy. Yep. It, at, at a minimum, I'm sure Ian would do it, and I could probably get some other people too. So let's wow, let, let's awesome. we'll, we'll talk offline about it, but I, we can make that happen. I think. Okay, great. And you know, last question that we had. This is back to the back, back to back to the future again. Is where <laughs> do you see the franchise going next? Ah, uh, if there's you? anywhere for it to go. Yeah. Um, well, you know where we're going. We don't need roads. Um, <laughs> you know, if there's anywhere for it to go, uh, you know. They have done such a creative job in expanding the universe through um, comic books and video games. And those are original stories that they're just sort of expanding. Um, You know, for a period of time, they were talking about doing a musical. I don't know if that's ever going to happen. I, 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 to be honest with you, I kind of struggle to see what that would look like. But who knows? One thing that they're doing with Back to the Future that I think is just brilliant is that they've been touring the world doing screenings with these live orchestras playing the score. And I had the the pleasure seeing this at Radio City Music Hall in New York. And it was, it was great. I mean, you know, as you can imagine, I've seen Back to the Future a million times by now. And, you know, it's after having, after having written a book about it and interviewed, you know, uh, done a bunch of interviews myself and interviewed a bunch of people about it. You know, there's there are times where you kind of want to take a little break <laughs> from the thing that you've been working on. But shortly after the book was released, I had the opportunity to go see this and I was just floored. It was just amazing. You know, I I have no interest in seeing um, a Back to the Future part four. I have no interest in seeing a reboot. Um, you know, it's not every once in a while. I mean, I'm sure you guys know every once in a while, you know, people will post something or you know, allegedly confirm something, you know, there are all these sort of hoaxes. Um, (laughs) That that's just the wrong direction. I think the right thing to do is find new creative ways to get fans to engage with the films that they already love. And um, that's why I love doing conventions. I know other authors that hate doing conventions, but there's nothing I love more than doing exactly what I'm doing right now, which is um, talking with people that love the same thing that I love and being able to trade thoughts and ideas and have a conversation. And um, you get to do that at these conventions. And so, you know, I'd love to see Back to the Future have more of a presence at, at those sorts of things where fans can get together. Actually, it, this is reminding me. I don't know if you guys are familiar with We're Going Back. They This was this amazing... Um, convention in Los Angeles in, I believe, 2010, and they did it again in 2015. Okay. And they literally converted um, an area of a town's, like, downtown Main Street area 
to look like Hill Valley. There were a bunch of actors there. They had people that were able to go hoverboarding um, like on a crane rig. It was it was <laughs> one of the best experiences of my life. They had an uh, uh, enchantment under the sea dance. You know, a bunch of the actors were there. Um, tons of fans were there. It was run by the fans. That's something that I would love to see Back to the Future become. You know, take that to major cities across the United States, around the world. You know, if they can just replicate a, a fraction of what we experienced um, in that weekend in 2015, I mean, that that would just be beautiful. Yeah, I believe that's featured pretty prominently in the documentary they put out. I think called yeah, Back the, in Time. Yeah, the the first the the 2010 one was featured pretty prominently and the 2015 one was like that like on steroids. It was it was just yeah. uh, it was amazing. It was really amazing. And and there were tons of people like the editors were there. Costume people were there. You know, it wasn't just like the actors. It were it was all of these people from different aspects of Back to the Future that were there to celebrate these films and um and that was just just a really really cool thing. Yeah, I would I would definitely love to go with that. Hopefully they'll do that for the 35 years. So a couple more year so. and a half. Let's do it. Yeah. Hey, Casey, anything else you want to plug as far? I know you mentioned a, an appearance coming up at one of the conventions, anything you'd like to plug where our audience might be able to find you. Well, if you're going to, if you're in the, um, I'm going to be in Boston and also in Toronto in, um, in August, I'll be at fan expo, Boston and fan expo, uh, Canada. Um, and so you can find those uh, the information for that on my social media or um, on the social media for Fan Expo Canada and Fan Ex- Expo Boston. Um, Michael J. Fox, Chris Lloyd, Leah Thompson, and Tom Wilson will be at those events as well. So if you have never met them or if you've met them and just would like to meet them again, um, that's a good opportunity. And just I would say just keep up with me on social media. There's tons of stuff that's going on all the time. I like to post lots of fun pop culture things and um and love to to have these sorts of conversations so feel free to send me a message or tweet at me or um engage with me on social on facebook and um and we'll stay in touch that way thank you so much for coming on the show this was awesome i i love talking back to the future with you thank you i had such a great time this was really fun yeah, man, you are awesome. We appreciate all that you uh, taking some time and discussing some great information. And I, I know our fans are going to dig this. So really appreciate it. I hope they find it pretty heavy. <laughs> so you can follow Casein on Twitter at Casein Gaines. That's C-A-S-E-E-N-G-A-I-N-E-S. We'll be tweeting out the link to his website as well. Go pick up a copy of where we're going. We don't need roads. It's such a great read. You'll be supporting Casein in the process. And we're going to look to have him back on hopefully later in the year to talk about a Christmas story. Let's do it. Thank you guys so much for hitting the download button on today's podcast. Reminder, we will be back tomorrow with the full review for Back to the Future. It's episode 50. We have a lot of fun stuff in store for you guys. Again, support Casing Games on Twitter. Also his website, CasingGames.com. You can find links to all his books. As always, make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, YouTube. It's completely free. Just remember to leave us a five-star review. That's going to help us grow the podcast. For now, it's time to hop back into our DeLorean, and we will be back tomorrow with the next episode, Back to the Future, the full review. See ya!